This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. Siri. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. All right. Welcome to High Theory. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) I'm glad to have you. So today we're speaking with Laura Whitman about near-death experiences. Laura, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Um, I teach French and Italian literature at Stanford, and I mainly work on 19th and 20th and 21st century stuff, um, literature and film and culture. And I'm really interested in what happens to religious experience in the modern and supposedly secular era. So I've worked a lot on how grief happened after World War One, and just more generally, what what are life-changing experiences of insight that people can have in this kind of modern context? And I know that you're writing a book about your death experiences. Um, so you are the right person to ask, what the heck is a near-death experience? A near-death experience happens when people nearly die and have a vision. So what does nearly die mean? It mostly means people have uh, heart attacks, strokes, or other types of physical traumatic events, and they get resuscitated, and they you know, remember things from that time. Uh, but interestingly, nearly die can also mean that you think you're about to die. So people who you know, are about to have a car accident, and they think they're going to crash, and they have an out-of-body experience, but then they, they turn out to be fine physically, or people who fall off cliffs and experience time distortion and, you know, break a leg, but don't actually come close to dying. So it happens that way too. In terms of having a vision, there's kind of a bestseller version that I think um, certainly, you know, I, I hope a lot of people have heard of a little bit. You go through a dark tunnel, you see a light, you have an out-of-body experience. Often you have this thing called the life review where you sort of see a film of your whole life at an accelerated pace. Maybe you encounter beings who give you existential advice and send you back to go live your life in a different way. And often this kind of story is marketed as proof of heaven. Uh, That's one of the titles of a bestseller, but there are many such titles. 
so in fact, uh, what I've found in my work is that the visions are much, much more varied. Sometimes they're scary visions or even hellish visions, but much more often they're just much more personal and more mysterious, more hard to describe, more tentative. So people feel like they've had a vision or an experience, but they're a little bit hard pressed to say sometimes why it's so important. And yet they feel that it's very, very important. So I would say that there are two really fundamental features that make a near-death experience in, in this broader, more varied sense. And one of them is having a story about what happened to you. So it's not just, uh, you know, I nearly died when I had a heart attack, but there's a story about what was going on in, in my head and in my body or in my spirit while I was nearly dying. And that story is really important. And it's kind of interesting. One of the things that there's actual quantitative research on is that people who have this kind of story about what was going on in their heads when they were nearly dying experience more life change and more lasting life change than patients who also nearly die but don't have a story. And the other really important feature that I've been working on is what I call the feeling of truth which is that people feel very strongly that this story of what happened to them when they were nearly dying is really important. They have to figure out what it means. They have to take action on it. They have to turn their lives upside down for it. It matters a lot. And this is often where they come into conflict with not just their doctors, but their families, their friends, who often, I think, feel like, well, you had a weird vision, maybe it was a hallucination, you know, why do you think you need to change your life as a result, right? So it's this feeling of, I I must do something, I must transform, that is also kind of interesting, like, where does that come from? I'm really curious as to your sources, like, where are you getting all these stories? But also, can you give us some examples of the changes that people want to make? Changes can go from you know, I need a totally different career because I want to do something that feels more meaningful to me, you know, whether it's like work with the homeless or, you know, do ecological activism or whatever it is. I mean, it often goes in the kind of direction of altruism and and helping other people or, you know, doing something other than simply making money to survive. Right. Uh, But it's also sometimes it's I'm going to change religions, you know, I'm going to completely move away from the one I grew up with and explore and find something else or not. It's not rare that it ends up in divorce as well. People feel like they've, you know, they have become different and they, they don't, they have trouble getting along with their partners. Not always, of course, but it happens. Those are some of the, the big ones, you know. Um, Oh, also I think there's this sense of um, going back to, heal old wounds or conflicts that might be hanging over you in your life or that kind of thing. Those are some of the big ones. Yeah. In terms of sources, I have a mixture in, you know, my work is it tries to look at historical testimony. So starting in the 19th century, you start people, including doctors, actually, uh, they start collecting these kinds of stories from patients, uh, sometimes from their own experiences. There are also some interesting books about um, hikers and mountain climbers who have these 
experiences. Um, so some of it is just first person testimony. A lot of my materials are also literary and there's kind of a, a sudden interest in what in the 19th century were rewritings of the Lazarus story. So, you know, in the Christian Bible, Lazarus dies and um, is in the tomb for four days before he's resurrected by Jesus. And in the Bible, he has nothing to report about what happened to him because the, the point is that Jesus was able to resurrect him. That's the point of the story. But in the 19th century, people start to get really curious about, well, you know, what was going on for him while he was dead for four days. Mm -hmm. And literature was kind of a safe place for the whole 20th century, really, to explore experiences that otherwise would be kind of on the edge of mental illness, or as they called it, madness or hallucination. Um, so it was a place for authors to either explore their own experiences or draw from the testimony of others to think about what it might mean. How do I use near-death experiences? What I'm interested in is how near-death uh, changes us through story and what is that feeling of truth and how can we leverage it really to, to make transformations that, that we think are important. And I kind of have three examples that I can talk about um, for how we can use near-death experiences kind of in almost a practical way in the present world. Um, one of them is that it helps us understand what dying patients might be experiencing when they're th going through this process of dying. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can think back on, again, 19th century and before you would die at home surrounded by family, possibly a priest. And a lot of what a good death was made of was that you would be able to, um, you would be lucid, conscious, and you would be able to uh, sort of give a last, have a last overview of your life and understand its meaning, right? A kind of closure in a way. And there would be people around you who would receive this closure and this, almost like a testament, if you want. Um, and that all kind of went away as death moved into hospitals more and more in the late 19th century. And um, it's interesting, in the 20th century, you start to have nurses talking about how patients in hospitals really, they want this moment. They, they have what is called a, often a lucid moment near death where they... Um, you know, even patients who seem to be not very conscious or not very coherent can suddenly have some big things to say about their lives. Mm -hmm. And and clearly, um, it, it's important for someone to hear them. Um, and so near-death experiences help us kind of maybe imagine better what these patients are going through and and also just bring attention to how something that can, it can sound like a hallucination, it can actually be someone trying to tell a story about what's happening to them. And I don't know if you know the work of Oliver Sacks, the, the physician, he wrote a big book called Hallucinations. Okay. Um, and he spent many years listening to his patients, in particular, um, Parkinson's patients who have dementia and other um, patients who have dementia, talking to them and listening to what they had to say. And he talks about how 
sure, it doesn't make sense from a kind of purely rational, factual perspective, but he feels like there was a great deal of emotional communication going on. And he writes about it quite eloquently. And I think near-death narratives can often be about that, right? That this sounds crazy and irrational, but here's what it means to me, right? So we can we can learn to understand what the dying are saying through these testimonies. Um, and the second example is really related, which is that near-death narratives can help us prepare for our own dying, mm. which is a thing our culture is kind of um, allergic to. You know, we, we tend to not want to think about our own dying at all. Mm -hmm. But I think we are also a little bit haunted by, you know, the fear of being alone in a hospital with no one who cares and no one who listens and tubes coming out of our bodies. And, um, and what I've found that's really interesting is that um, what you expect really colors what you experience. So I haven't done this research, but I draw on other people who do cross-cultural comparison of near-death experiences. And in cultures where death is more of a, if I can put it this way, a social event, <laughs> people, um, people expect that and they approach it with less fear. And in cultures where people expect to be alone and frightened and hallucinating, it, that's more likely to happen. So I and I think he, in the in the West, um, there is this palliative care movement where you know there's this this goal to make the the passage of death more comfortable. And I think near death experiences can help with that too, um, just to give us stories, narratives that we can use um, that are different from the story of, you know, I'm alone and isolated and there's no one there. Um, yeah. So, and, and this is where I think it's, it's good to get beyond the bestseller version, which is a little bit bland and kind of repetitive. You know, it seems like every two or three years, a new one comes out, but they're all modeled on each other. And honestly, they're often also ghost written so people have an experience but then they get a ghost writer to like make it into the, the the version that will sell so it's kind of a phenomenon um and i think if we could get away from those and you know be more familiar with the richness of the actual stories of what people experience then we would familiarize ourselves with the options to, to you know if i can put it that way of like what, what kind of death do I want? What do I want to be thinking about when I'm dying? You know, who would I like there ideally? You know, what, what sort of wishes am I even allowed to express about this moment? You know, the so one more thing that is clear is that when people, when they have these visions and they think they're dying and then they come back and, you know, they suddenly there's more life to live and they, they seem to take this as a real opportunity to, rethink what makes a good life. And, you know, having had this unusual perspective of being quite persuaded that they were about to die in one way or another, mm -hmm. um, it gives them a new vision really of, you know, what, what makes life meaningful. And I think that's also really useful for us because we tend to get very busy and distracted and, you know, we work a lot and, you know, we're, we're trying to just keep going. And we rarely stop to really think, where am I going? What do I really want to be doing? Um, so it's, 
you know, it's not exactly a bucket list. It's more like an existential bucket list. Like, you know, what are the, <laughs> what are the existential things that I really need to do? Um, and again, historically, you can kind of see how it used to be the role of religion to make people ask those questions. And as we get more secular, which it, it doesn't mean people aren't religious, but, you know, the large majority of Americans say that they are spiritual, but not religious. Mm-hmm. So it kind of means I have spiritual desires and beliefs, but I'm also, I need more guidance. I don't have a community necessarily. And I think near death is a, is a way to give voice to some of those questions, right? What does, what seems meaningful from this weird perspective of the end of life? That seems like an excellent transition to our final question. How will near death experiences save the world? I think you know, what I see is that Western culture is often kind of overwhelmed by material concerns it and also dominated by, you know, ultra wealthy people, ultra wealthy corporations. And this often prevents us from asking questions about how we should take care of each other or how we should take care of the planet or what makes a life meaningful outside of those paradigms. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I find really interesting is that people who have these experiences um, are very courageous in confronting change. They make changes to their lives really fearlessly. Mm -hmm. And I think we kind of, we need some of that. So I, I feel like, especially when thinking about, ecological collapse, uh, things like climate migration, um, things like the huge divide between the haves and have nots in our world. These things can feel really overwhelming and so frightening that nothing can be done. Um, And there's a kind of, there's a danger that we lose hope and get paralyzed, right? And I think people who have this brush with death they seem often to come back with this view that, you know, your life is your, yours to, to use as best you can. And, you know, it's worse to waste it. You know, it, dying is not the worst thing that could happen to you, right? You, not using your life, not actually sort of making conscious choices is, is worse than dying. Um, and, and so they seem to just kind of, yeah, there's a there's an embrace of change that that comes with the experience that is is pretty remarkable. Um, and I'm not sure there's a magic button we can push to be able to do that ourselves. But, you know, we, we are social and reading about other people who make big changes courageously can be inspiring. Yeah, I think near death experiences might change the world. I'm not even if they don't save it, perhaps. I mean, I, I think they can certainly change, you know, they do change, of course, some people's lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think we're seeing people looking for sources of inspiration. Yeah. And, and this is one place. There, there probably are lots of other interesting places where inspiration happens. You know, this is one of them. And this is why the literary sources are really interesting it's it's a tough balance, right? It, when you have first person narratives, they're powerful because um, people are talking about their own experience. Mm-hmm. 
but of course, writers and poets are very good at using language in a powerful way, right? So they, they can take an experience that may not even be their own and turn it into a really powerful drama. So putting the two types of sources together is also really interesting. Um, Laura, thank you so much for coming and talking with us about near-death experiences. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been really fun. And, you know, I, I love your podcast idea and it's an honor to be here. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast fix. Sharnik Bosu and Nathan Kim manage your social media presence. Julia Aria Martins edits our transcripts. Owen Quinn composes our theme music, and Kim Adams and Sharonic Bosu edit our audio. You can also find us at hightheory.net. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.